This is Condopedia. Here, we talk about everything related to condo law in Ontario, with hopefully some humor mixed in. Welcome everyone to our DHA summer kickoff party. Well, I guess it's not much of a party because we're not outside and we're not all together in person having munchies or appies, etc. But it's still a summer kickoff. Oh, it was, it's too bad we don't have some nice sunshine outside to kick us off. But I guess the benefit of not having sunshine outside is that everybody's willing to sit inside and listen to a webinar. So today we're going to go through a bunch of questions which were submitted by our viewers and our owners and our directors, all of the members of the industry here today. Uh, they were submitted in advance. It is our Q&A session. So you send in the questions and we provide answers as best as we can. Another part of our summer kickoff is to announce the winner of our iPad, winner of the Apple iPad based on a recent condo contest, Great Eastern Ontario condo contest. It's been running for the past uh, six to eight weeks. We're really excited to announce our winner here. They may or may not be in the crowd today. So stay tuned for that at the end of our session. We have some really exciting questions today. And I'm just going to start off with the first question because it's a bit of a snapper. And the question is, are virtual meetings still permitted? Well, right now, the answer is yes. It's a nice, easy yes right now. The government has mandated that virtual meetings can continue up until the end of September 2022. We anticipate that between now and the end of September 2022, we're going to see one of two things happen. Either we're going to see that date extended or we're going to see some legislation coming out to make virtual meetings permanently permissible. We don't know exactly which way we're going to go. We know there's been a lot of uh, industry um, feedback provided to the government on what those regulations should look like. So hopefully we'll see some regulations. But either way, I do anticipate one way or another, we're going to have the ability in the fall to do virtual meetings without the necessity of having to pass a bylaw. Now, having said that, if you're in the process of having meetings now and you have the ability to pass a bylaw, it's always better to be safe than sorry, you can get that virtual meeting bylaw passed, which will also set out your procedure in the event that what we see coming down from the government is a basic uh, permissible statement saying virtual meetings can be held and you decide on your procedure. So lots of different things coming down the pipe. We don't know exactly where we're going to land with the government, but either way, if you have an opportunity, always safest to go ahead and pass your virtual meeting bylaw. And of course, uh, virtual meetings are dealt with somewhat differently if it's an ownership meeting or a board meeting. So again, right now, board meetings are continue, are permitted to continue without the consent of all board members virtually. We don't yet know what that's going to look like uh, when the legislation is changed coming down the pipe soon. So again, stay tuned for that and we'll have a follow-up blog on that shortly. Hopefully that first question, that little snapper has been answered. And we'll move on to our more substantive topics now. Our first speaker is going to be Melinda. So Melinda is going to go ahead and join me on screen here. And Melinda is going to talk about the ins and outs of smoking. We get, I think we get a smoking question just about every session because it really is always a hot topic. So Melinda, over to you. Great. Thanks, Nancy. So the question I have, the owner asking lives in a no smoking building where their neighbor smokes inside the unit and it transfers to other units and is bothersome. The smoker claims that he has uh, specific rights, but the question is what can be done about the impact on other owners? 
So to start with, smoking in condominiums is regulated in two ways. The first is by legislation called the Smoke-Free Ontario Act. And with respect to condominiums, it tells us that smoking is prohibited on the indoor common elements and on restaurant patios. So if your condo has a restaurant on the property, you can't smoke on the patio. Beyond that, though, the legislation doesn't regulate smoking inside units on balconies or on outside common element areas. So to regulate those areas, the condominium would need to pass a rule or have a rule in place, which is the second way that um, smoking is regulated in condominiums. So to determine what the smokers obligations are outside of the legislation, we look um, to see what the rule essentially tells us. One new point to be aware of, and I think I've mentioned this before, but it's an important point to hit home, um, especially when you're looking at smoking rules, is that typically they contain a provision called a grandfathering provision. So that's a provision that would allow the smoker who may have lived on the property at the time that the rule is passed to continue smoking, even though the rule now prohibits smoking. Um, the current trend, we're moving away from using the term grandfathering provision because it has a sorted past. And so the new term that we use is called a legacy provision. So that's just a point to be aware of. And we see it a lot in smoking rules these days. So to assess the smoker's obligations, we first check the rule um, to see if the smoker is covered by a legacy provision to smoke in the unit. If not, so if they're not uh, covered by the legacy provision, the owner has no right to smoke in the unit and you're dealing with a compliance issue. And in that case, the condominium has an obligation to take steps to seek the owner's compliance with the rule. And presumably that the smoker would be required to smoke outside in a designated smoking area. If the owner is allowed to smoke in the unit though, um, because they're covered by a legacy provision, but the condominium is still getting complaints about smoke transfer, it gets a bit more complicated. And so the first step is to figure out what is causing the smoke transfer. So our rule, so the template rule that our firm uses um, requires smokers to take steps to ensure that their smoke isn't a nuisance. So for example, by using appropriate air purifiers to prevent smoke transfer. Steps can also be taken to make sure owners aren't disrupting the air handling between units. This can often come up in high-rise um, high buildings. So the unit receiving the smoke shouldn't run their fans because it depressurizes their unit and draws the smoke in. And the source unit shouldn't leave their windows open because it pressurizes their unit and draws the smoke out. And these are important points because they are essentially counterintuitive. Often the smoker wants to keep their window open or the unit receiving the smoke wants to turn their fan on, but it, that actually makes the situation worse. So it's important to look into those two points because often owners are surprised about those um, requirements. But if those any of those points don't resolve the, the smoke transfer complaint, the, the next steps are the condo can investigate to see if there's some sort of building defect that's causing the smoke transfer between the units. But if there isn't, um, then the source unit, so the smoker, has an obligation to take further action because in our view, smoke transfer is considered an unsafe condition that would contravene Section 117 of the Condominium Act. So options here would be to smoke in the designated outdoor smoking area or to, if they really needed to smoke indoors, install um, one of the specialized smoking chambers in the unit. 
So that those are my comments on smoking. Nancy, I'll hand it over to you. Thank you so much, Melinda. That was fantastic. So again, always a very, very hot topic and uh, something that you sometimes have to approach with extreme caution, depending on the circumstances, but you do have a duty to take steps. So make sure you are doing something. Next up, we have Jim. Jim is going to talk to us about, again, another hot topic, reserve funds and insurance. I think not a day goes by that we don't all uh, speak about insurance. So Jim, over to you. Thank you very much, Nancy. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm actually going to start off with a couple of questions uh, with respect to insurance. So here's the first question that we received. My condo corporation says they won't cover my deductible or anybody else's below me for the water leak that originated from a pipe inside the walls. Is this a standard condo practice? So it sounds like what we've had here is a leak that has uh, gone down a number of floors, which we see sometimes in a high rise building. So here's my answer. If we're talking about the owner's deductible in relation to the owner's unit insurance, uh, which applies to damage to unit improvements, then in my view, the condominium corporation is only liable if the leak was the result of the condominium corporation's negligence. So this depends entirely upon the specific facts, why the leak occurred. But if there was no negligence on the part of the condominium corporation, I think that each owner must bear their own loss, including any deductibles on their own insurance policies. Now, if we're talking about the deductible on the corporation's insurance policy in relation to insured damage to the standard units, that's a different analysis. So let me quickly run through that. Ontario condominium corporations are required to arrange insurance covering the common elements and the standard units. And this insurance also belongs to all of the owners. When the common elements or one or more standard units are damaged by an insured event, like fire, water escape, windstorm, the owners are all entitled to the insurance coverage that is available under the corporation's policy. So an owner can never be held responsible for any damage that is covered by the corporation's insurance, again, because the insurance also belongs to the owners. It's their insurance as well. However, the owners can be held responsible for loss within the corporation's deductible in two circumstances. First, if the owner or an occupant of the unit has caused the damage through an act or omission, it's insured damage, then they can be held responsible for the deductible in those circumstances if it's damage to their own unit. Or the second branch is if the corporation has passed an insurance deductibles bylaw that renders the owner responsible, that is enforceable. So my answer to the question posed in this case is as follows. If the condominium corporation has a bylaw that renders one or more owners responsible uh, for the corporation's deductible, even in the case of the leak from the common elements, then it's all perfectly legal. And this may also make good economic sense because the owner should have insurance to cover their risks in relation to the corporation's deductible. But I stress, this is just gonna depend upon the wording of the particular insurance deductibles bylaw. Okay, my next insurance question. What are the repercussions for a condominium corporation upon discovery by a buyer 
that an item is missing from the standard unit definition. What recourse does this buyer slash owner have? Here's my answer. A unit feature that is not included in the standard unit description or is left out of the standard unit description is considered a unit improvement that falls within the insurance responsibilities of the owners. So the effect is that owners have to arrange any desired insurance for such unit improvements. To change the standard unit description, you can pass an amending standard unit bylaw or a new standard unit bylaw to change the standard unit description. The, this process has to be started by the board. So the buyer or owner's recourse is to try to persuade the board that the standard unit description should be amended to include that feature that they think has been left out. One last note, if the error is obvious or clear, I think there might be an argument that the amendment is necessary and perhaps can even go ahead without a vote of the owners. In other words, you can do an amending bylaws. In my view, if it's to correct a clear error, you might not even need to put it to a vote, but that would depend upon the specific facts. Okay, now turning to my reserve fund question. Um, here's the question. I have trouble with the interpretation of Ontario Regulation 4801, Section 27, requiring a 30-year plan. We all know about the 30-year reserve fund studies and plans, the minimum 30 years. My problem is understanding why an item, for instance, a roof replacement, needs to be budgeted for more than once in a reserve fund study. Many existing owners probably won't be here by the time the roof needs to be replaced a second time. All references in the regulation are for repair or replacement. Nowhere does it indicate multiple replacements for the same item. Okay, so here's my answer. In my view, the obligation of a reserve fund analyst when preparing a reserve fund study is to predict all major repair and replacement requirements over at least the 30 years, the study period. And based upon those predictions, the analyst is to plan for constant contributions to the reserve fund, increasing only by inflation, which will allow for fulfillment of all the predicted work. And this requirement to plan to reach this equilibrium stage of constant contributions, increasing only by inflation, has to be that uh, the plan has to be reached within time frames indicated in the regulations. So you have to get to that place of equilibrium within a certain time frame. The theory is that future owners should pay no more than current owners for major repairs and replacements, even though much of the work will be done many years in the future. Note that this is what allows con condominiums to sell. Otherwise, purchasers would always have to be wondering and worrying about how condo fees might increase in the future. So that's the whole theory of reserve fund planning is to come up with a reliable, adequate contribution that is predicted to remain constant, increasing only by inflation. And this is what allows condominiums to sell. Many experts feel that the 30-year period is too short. In fact, anticipated amendments to the regulations are expected to increase the period to 45 or maybe even 60 years or maybe even more. Now, I don't profess to be a math expert, but I think that all repair or replacement cycles that are predicted to occur in the study period have to be included. 
That's how I read section 29 of the regulation. In other words, I don't see any basis for including only one cycle if there will actually be more than one cycle during the study period. Furthermore, I think it's important to ensure that a repeating cost is built into the annual contributions and isn't somehow dropped in later years. I think including the repeating cycles should serve to keep the annual contribution where it needs to be, that adequacy level that I described. But again, I defer to others who are stronger than me on those math issues. But in terms of the legal requirement, it's certainly my view that all cycles that will occur during the study period must be included. That's what's contemplated by the regulations in my view. Hey, Nance, there you go. Fabulous, Jim. Thank you so much. Reserve fund studies can definitely be tricky as our, our environment is changing. And I think the upcoming studies, we're going to have to factor in some of the increased inflationary costs that we're seeing. So uh, definitely something has to be revisited on a very regular basis. All right. Thank you, Jim. All right, folks, we're moving on to our next topic, which is electric vehicles. Another just fantastically hot topic right now. We are dealing with many, many condominium corporations on a daily basis that are looking into getting electric vehicle charging stations installed uh, because it is just around the corner. So, David, over to you on everything we need to know about EV charging. Thanks. Thank you, Nancy. So, yes, my topic is on electric vehicles. Um, as our listeners may know, the Canadian federal government recently announced that they will be banning new sales of gas-only cars after 2035. And with our current gas prices, I think we're going to probably see more and more people take up and own electric vehicles in the future. Now, I've seen uh, some new condominiums in Montreal and Toronto that have charging stations built in. The benefit of this arrangement is that, of course, uh, the use of the charging stations would be governed by the new condos governing documents. I haven't heard personally yet of any new condominiums in Ottawa that have charging stations built in just yet, but I'm sure it's just going to be a matter of time until we see those uh, out here as well. Now, the question on EVs that we received is with respect to existing condominiums. I'm going to be reading out the question. The increase in the uptake of electric vehicles is expected to result in an increase in demand for electric powered cars amongst Canadians. For condominiums, this will eventually result in a requirement to upgrade the electrical capacity of the condominium building to satisfy the increased demand for energy. The increased electric, electrical capacity is an improvement. However, condo reserve funds are not permitted to be used to fund improvements. This means that condo corporations have no means other than special assessments to fund the increased capacity for their buildings. How and when is this apparent contradiction in law or regulation and government policy likely to be resolved? Is there anything that condo corporations can do in the meantime to prepare for this future requirement to provide sufficient capacity for owners EV chargers? For existing condominiums, the challenge is to balance the rights of the condo owners or residents who wish to charge their EVs at a condo and the rights of the condo owners or residents who don't own EVs. Who should pay for any necessary electrical upgrades and the electricity use? This is a challenging issue because governing documents and many condominiums that exist today never contemplated the advent of electric vehicles. And we here at DHA have, and we expect to increasingly see these issues arise. As an overview, 
there are currently regulations under the Condo Act that outline the procedure for installing EV charging stations at existing condominiums. Under the current regulations, a condo board can, in certain circumstances, install EV charging stations at the condominium's expense if, one, the installation cost, excluding post-installation slash operating expenses, is no more than 10% of the condominium's annual budget, and two, the board believes that the owners would not regard the installation as a major reduction or elimination of their use of condominium property. If these conditions are met, the board can notify the owners with the details of the proposed installation and proceed with the work 60 days later. Owners would only have the right to call a meeting to challenge the board's proposed installation if either of those two conditions are not met. In such a circumstance, for example, if the upgrades cost more than 10% of the condominium's annual budget, the condominium can make the upgrades after providing notice to the owners and providing an opportunity for the owners to requisition a meeting to vote on the proposed upgrades. The current regulations also allow owners to install an EV charging station at their own expense, provided that they apply to the condo board in writing. The board must then respond to the owner's application within 60 days or by a mutually agreed upon deadline. In such a circumstance, the ability for a board to reject an owner's application is limited. An application can only be rejected if an expert, such as an engineer, concludes that the installation would, one, be contrary to a statute or regulation, two, adversely affect the structural integrity of the condominium property or assets, or three, pose a serious health and safety risk to people or a serious risk of damage to condominium property or assets. If an owner's application is accepted, the parties then enter into an installation agreement, which governs uh, various items such as the responsibility for the costs, uh, maintenance and repair allocations, um, and whoever, and another example is who pays for the extra hydro uh, consumption. Of course, as the individual submitting the question points out, the major issue is with respect to costs associated with the installation and maintenance and repair of the charging station, as well as the elect elevated electricity costs. The solution to this problem is likely going to be very situation specific, depending on the circumstances at each community. The person submitting the question is correct that EV charging station upgrades cannot be funded in most cases from the reserve fund since they technically don't qualify as major repairs or replacements. Having said this, there is a pending amendment for Section 93 of the Condominium Act that will uh, permit the reserve fund to be used for other prescribed purposes. Uh, the expectations that we have is that within uh, the new regulations, which will define what the prescribed purposes are, there will be an item allowing for green energy projects to be funded by the reserve fund. Now, uh, we don't have any timelines yet on when the new Section 93 of the Act will come into effect, and we also currently don't have the draft wording of the proposed regulations as of yet. But we do expect both to progress in the near future, particularly as more and more of us purchase EVs. And before I end off, I do want to have a final note that if your condo corporation is seriously considering an upgrade to its electrical system to accommodate EV chargers, um, and if the related cost associated with that is a real possibility, 
there may be a need to make a note about the possible chance for an increase in common expenses in the condominium corporation's status certificate. And with that, uh, that's all I have for EVs, and I'm going to put it back to Nancy. Great. Thank you so much, David. And as David said, pretty much every situation is case specific. In some cases, we are seeing owners assume responsibility for the chargers, while of course the corporation is assuming responsibility for the upgrades to the infrastructure and behind the scenes. In some cases, the corporation is having responsibility for infrastructure, electrical panels and transformers and the feed to the chargers and then owners are taking care of the chargers. It depends on whether you have exclusive use common element parking spaces or uh, you're installing just a one-stop shop charging station with a paper use. So everything is very, very fact specific. So uh, again, reach out to the expert, the industry experts. There's a lot of different companies out there that are helping to come up with various options that are available for each kind of incorporation. And then of course, we're pleased to assist once you get to the stage where you need to uh, deal with the legal issues. On that note, we'll turn it over to Victoria. Victoria, so how would a board make decisions on some of these issues? Obviously not specific to EV charging, but board decision making. Turning it over to you, Vic. Thanks, Nancy. Um, good afternoon, everyone. So I have two questions pertaining to the obligations of directors, but I'm just going to provide just some general background as to what um, the obligations of directors are. So as a starting point, uh, directors are responsible for managing the affairs of the condominium corporation. The duties of a condominium corporation and by extension, the board of directors are set out in section 17 of the Condominium Act and primarily include managing the property and assets of the condominium corporation on behalf of all owners, controlling, managing, and administering the common elements and assets of the condominium, and uh, taking reasonable steps to ensure that owners and residents comply with the provisions of the Condominium Act and the condominium corporation's governing documents. And so directors are responsible for making everyday uh, decisions in relation to the maintenance and repair of the property, as well as the administration and governance of the condominium corporation. Um, and so when making these decisions, Section 37 of the Condominium Act confirms that directors are required to act honestly and in good faith and to exercise the care, diligence, and skill that a reasonably prudent person would um, exercise in comparable circumstances. And so this is the standard of care um, that directors need to consider when making decisions on behalf of the Condominium Corporation. Um, directors are generally not ultimately liable for things that they do strictly in their role as condominium directors. Uh, the condominium corporation may, of course, be liable for the decisions, acts, uh, and or admissions of directors, but the directors won't generally be personally exposed to liability unless they act dishonestly or in bad faith. And this is because the condominiums bylaws typically state that directors are entitled to be indemnified by the condominium corporation unless the director acts uh, dishonestly or in bad faith. Um, in addition, Section 39 of the Condominium Act requires condominium corporations uh, to have directors and officers liability insurance if it's reasonably available um, to provide insurance protection in most cases. Um, again, as long as there isn't dishonesty or bad faith on the part of the directors. 
Uh, just to provide a brief comment on bad faith, it's our view that a director will have acted in bad faith when they're making decisions based on their own personal interests uh, rather than based on their sense of what is in the best interest for the condominium corporation as a whole. And so to briefly summarize, as long as there hasn't been any dishonesty or bad faith on the part of the director, directors should still be personally protected, even where they're now negligent, either by the director or officer uh, liability insurance or by indemnification obligations of the condominium corporation. An excellent way to limit risk of liability, both for the condominium corporation and the directors, um, is to follow the advice of an expert. Uh, Section 37.3 of the Condominium Act uh, confirms that directors will not be liable for breach of their standard of care if they rely in good faith upon any opinion or report of the condominium's experts, such as an engineer, auditor, lawyer, etc., And so in our view, it's often wise to follow the advice of these experts. If a board chooses to ignore um, such advice, there is risk that the individual directors are exposing not only the condominium corporation, but also directors themselves to liability. So now turning to the two questions that we were asked about in relation to board obligations. So the first is, If a board chooses to ignore the advice of a professional, such as an engineer, what are the possible legal liabilities? So as I've just mentioned, if a board chooses to ignore the advice of a professional or expert, there is a possibility that the condominium corporation and or the individual directors could be held liable. So for example, if an engineer is advising that all of the balconies at a condominium need to be replaced within the next three months, and the and the board decides to hold off on completing this replacement for five years. And as a result of the board's decision to delay, there is either property damage and or injury, the condominium corporation and or the directors could could arguably be held liable for such damage and or injury. On the other hand, if the board takes reasonable steps to follow their engineer's advice to complete the replacement within that three-month time frame, there is very little risk of liability on the part of the condominium corporation and the individual directors. Uh, now, the second question is, when a board caters to what appears to be their own agenda and their inner circle, rather than serving the communal interests of the or communal needs and interests of the owners, what recourse uh, do the owners have? So if if the owners believe that a director is improperly or inappropriately serving the director's own interests rather than the interests of uh, the condominium corporation, the Condominium Act allows for the removal of that director that director by the owners uh, prior to the end of that director's term. So in particular, Section 33 of the Condominium Act confirms that owners who own at least 15% of the units can requisition a meeting, an owner's meeting for the purpose of removing a director by a vote of the owners. And so if If at that meeting, owners of more than 50% of the units vote in favor of that director's removal, the director's term will come to an end at that meeting. Section 33 also allows owners to, at the same meeting, elect any person qualified to be a member of the board and serve the remaining term of the director uh, who has been removed. In addition, as I've mentioned earlier, if the director's um, decision-making is in the director's personal interest rather than the best interest of the condominium corporation, this could amount to bad faith and the director could be held uh, personally liable for any resulting uh, damages and or losses. So that's me, Nancy. Over to you.
Fabulous, Victoria. Thank you. And it can be very difficult. Obviously, board members are owners as well in you know the vast majority of cases, probably 99% of the cases. So it's hard to take your owner hat off and put your board member hat on. But it is crucial that once you get into that boardroom, you act as a board member. And of course, there are decisions that have to be made by the board that are not properly made in the hands of the owners. So you always have to make sure that you're checking in each case in the act, what is your duty to make that decision? And even if owners ask to be making that decision with you, and if you think, well, it might be fun to have owners participate in the decision, in some cases, it really isn't permitted under the act. So it's, again, some tricky issues. Okay, and now we're gonna move on to everybody's favorite topic, I think, Tarion. Uh, as many of you will know, we also have a Tarion webcast series or a podcast series, sorry. So Christy's going to touch on some of the hottest topics that we've seen come out of the podcast. And then after you hear from Christy today, you feel free to go and check out our four-part Tarion podcast series with a lot of extra information. So Christy, over to you. Thank you, Nancy. And you took the words right out of my mouth. Um, yeah, these the questions that I'm going to cover are questions that we do cover off in a little more detail in those podcasts. So, um, and as well as many other questions with respect to Tarion. So please uh, check out our podcasts on, on Tarion. Um, the two questions that I'm going to be covering today uh, do relate to the Tarion process. And they're some of the more important questions that, that we tend to get with respect to the Tarion process. And the Tarion process, of course, applies to all uh, new, or for the most part, all new uh, residential condominiums in Ontario. And uh, there's there's Tarion warranties on both the units as well as on the common elements. And the corporation is responsible for uh, making warranty claims in relation to the common elements. So the first question that we received is, if I miss a Tarion deadline, is there anything that I can do? Um, the answer to this really does depend on the specifics of your situation, including wh which of the deadlines, um, the various deadlines that apply in the Tarion process was missed and how much time has passed since you missed the deadline. But generally speaking, um, Tarion does have the ability to extend its deadlines. It has the authority to do that under its enabling legislation. However, it will only do so in the most extraordinary of circumstances. Um, so if you become aware that you missed a Tarion deadline, uh, the most important thing that you can do is to request a, an extension from Tarion as soon as possible. So as soon as you become aware that you've missed a deadline, put in your request to extend the deadline. Um, if Tarion denies the request, which uh, is likely, if I'm being honest, um, because of the fact that they do tend to uh, put an emphasis on the word extraordinary when they're looking at the, the circumstances under which they may extend their own deadlines. Um, so if you are denied the request from Tarion, you have the ability to appeal that, that decision of Tarion to deny your request for an extension of time. Um, and so if, if you get the denial from Tarion, you can go ahead and apply to a tribunal called the License Appeal Tribunal that hears appeals of any decisions made by Tarion. And that tribunal actually gets to step into the shoes of Tarion, look at the situation and make its own decision on the same set of facts. So, um, so if it's, if, depend, again, depending on the circumstances, if the consequences of having missed the deadline are, are significant enough that it might justify proceeding with an appeal like that, um, then it's something you will definitely want to consider. The good news is that an appeal on such a concise issue is going to be a relatively straightforward matter, and it will probably not take a lot of time or resources. 
Uh, so if you do miss a deadline, again, request the extension as soon as you can, and then perhaps also consider seeking legal advice. I do want to mention that um, the consequences of missing a deadline uh, in the tearing process will vary depending on which deadline has been missed. But the most important deadline not to be missed, and this is something we uh, we covered off in our podcast in great detail, um, is uh, the deadline to request conciliation. So once the warranty claim periods have come to an end and the builder repair period has come to an end, uh, there's a very small window of opportunity. Right now it's 60 days. This time frame is being reviewed right now by Tarion, but um, right now it's 60 days that the corporation has to request uh, conciliation. If you miss the deadline to request conciliation, you will be deemed to have withdrawn all of your warranty claims. So it's a really important deadline to be aware of. And if you do miss it, again, just move as quickly as you can to request the extension and seek some legal advice as to what your, your alternatives may be if you if Tarion denies your request for an extension. The second question that I'm going to cover with respect to the Tarion process is, uh, if I receive a conciliation assessment report and I don't agree with it, uh, what should I do? So there's a couple different options that you can do if you get a conciliation report that you don't like. I'm going to take a quick step back to explain what a conciliation report is. Um, in the Tarion process, after you, again, after you've made your claims and the builder has had the builder repair period to, um, they've had time to fix the claims or address the claims to your satisfaction, they're still not addressed you request conciliation and the conciliation takes place. Conciliation is effectively Tarion's decision-making process. So this is the point in time in the process where Tarion will get, make a decision as to whether or not the items that you've claimed for are covered by warranty. Um, and so the conciliation takes place and the product of that or, or the document that's published by um, Tarion that follows follows from the conciliation is the conciliation assessment report. And this is the document where Tarion will go through each and every claim and will indicate whether or not the claim is warranted or not and why not, if not. So if you receive a conciliation report that you don't agree with, so if there's some claims that you've been denied for, uh, for warranty coverage on, um, you have a couple of options. The first option is that if there's information that you think Tarion ought to have had that it didn't have when it made its decision, or there's additional information that you're able to gather that wasn't available to Tarion at the time of the conciliation, you can submit that to Tarion after you receive the conciliation assessment report, and you can request essentially reconsideration, another conciliation by Tarion on the item. So often we'll see this if conciliation proceeds, Tarion decides there's um, you haven't proven the claim, and maybe you go off and you get an engineer to look at the item and they provide a report confirming what the cause of the problem is, and you're able to, basically the, the report that you get from the engineer provides you with the evidence you need to support a claim to Tarion, that there should be warranty coverage for the particular item. You can take that engineering report and submit it to Tarion and ask Tarion to look at the claim again in light of that report. Or likewise, if there is additional, um, uh, basically any additional evidence you gather. So if there is a, a something, for example, if you've had experienced flooding and some repairs have been done and Tarion thinks that the repairs have fixed the problem. And then after the conciliation, there's, there's a further flood or further, there's basically further incidents that provide you with evidence that the problem is not fixed, 
that's the kind of information again you can provide to Tarian and ask for reconciliation of the uh, of the item. Tarian will then consider uh, what you've submitted and they'll either refuse to do a further conciliation or Tarian will provide you with uh, a supplementary conciliation assessment report. Alternatively, from our experience, Tarian will sometimes, in, in response to your request for reconciliation, Tarian may ask the parties if they're willing to negotiate or sit down and have a further discussion about how you can resolve the item. So in other words, Tarian will try to guide maybe further discussions on settling the issue instead of having to go back and decide the claim again. So they, they may use the opportunity to sort of reopen the dialogue on the particular claim item, depending on the circumstances. If if no, no if if all of that sort of fails, if you received a conciliation assessment report, there's no further opportunity to engage in discussion, and there's no further information to be provided to Tarion, um, then you do have appeal rights. You're you're again just like in dealing with a decision that Tarion makes to deny your request for an extension of time. When Tarion issues a conciliation report, you're entitled to. Uh, appeal that to the same tribunal. It's the License Appeal Tribunal. So the decisions that are made by Tarion in the Conciliation Assessment Report, you can ask that tribunal to review um, the claims and to essentially step into the shoes of Tarion, look at the situation with fresh eyes and decide um, for itself whether or not the, the claim should be warranted or not based on the, the information and evidence that you're able to put forward in that process. One thing to be aware of is before you can go ahead with a, an appeal, you have to request a further document from Tarion called a decision letter. So the conciliation assessment report is not the same thing as Tarion's decision letter. Tarion's decision letter is its final and binding decision with respect to the, the claim items, the warranty claim items. Um, and you'll have to get Tarion's decision letter in order to appeal it. You can't appeal um, from a conciliation report again, it had the, the appeal will stem or be triggered by um, the decision letter that Tarion issues. Just be uh, aware that once you request a, a decision letter, once you receive it, you have a very small window of opportunity in which to file your appeal. It's only 15 days. So just be aware of that. If you decide to go ahead and request a decision letter, um, you don't have to do it uh, in any particular time frame. Tarion might issue it in the meantime on its own volition, but more frequently than not, um, you, the, the homeowner or the condominium is going to have to request the decision letter. So you only want to do that if and when you're ready to proceed with an appeal. And um, again, you may want to consider getting legal advice before uh, doing that, just so that everything is sort of lined up and ready to go for an appeal when you request that decision letter. So that's all I've got on Tarion right now. But again, please feel free to listen to our podcast for more information. Fabulous, Christy. I love listening to Christy present on Tarion. She's our firm lead on all things building deficiency in Tarion. And it's clear it just flows out of your mouth, all of the options and ideas. Uh, we also have some individuals who are participating here today who have been big advocates for change in the Tarion program. So I'm just going to thank those of you, you know who you are, who are attending today, uh, advocating for change, even though Tarion uh, legislation or Ontario Home Warranties Plan Act is supposed to be consumer protection legislation, it still needs some tweaking. Uh, you have to be your own advocate. Uh, so again, for everybody who's involved in that, thank you. And Christy is involved in the Canadian Condominium Institute portion advocating for change as well. So let's hopefully we can continue to see improvements. And now our last speaker for our session here today is Jessica. Jessica, you're going to tell us all about 
or give us all the answers to our questions related to requests for records. So I'll turn it over to you, Jessica. Great, thanks, Nancy. Good afternoon, everybody. As Nancy mentioned, the question I'm gonna be discussing today deals with records of the corporation. Specifically, the question we received is whether an owner is entitled to access contracts for services, for example, a lawn maintenance or snow removal contract. And the short answer to that question is yes. Subject to section 55.4 of the Condominium Act, owners are entitled to review records of the corporation upon written request. This would include contracts for services. Section 55.4 of the Act sets out exceptions and confirms that owners are not entitled to view records or portions of records that relate to the following. Employees of the corporation except for employment contracts, actual or contemplated litigation or insurance investigations involving the corporation, other units or unit owners, or any other prescribed records. There will also be an exception for records protected from production by solicitor client privilege for communications with the corporation's lawyers. So it's important that any items falling within the section 55.4 exceptions of the act or that are otherwise privileged or confidential <clears throat> are blacked out or otherwise redacted or removed from any records which may be provided to the owner. So what happens when an owner wants to um, access a record of the condominium corporation? The process starts with a mandatory form called a request for records that must be submitted to your condominium corporation. The form sets out the requester's information and the documents being requested. Certain documents of the corporation are considered core records and some are considered non-core records. And there is a slightly different timeline for producing each of these types of records. Core records are records of the condominium corporation that are defined in the regulations to the Condominium Act. Examples of this include the corporation's declaration, bylaws and rules, minutes from board meetings within the last 12 months and the budget for the current fiscal year. The corporation has a shorter time frame to provide the owner with requested core records versus non-core records. So once an owner has submitted this mandatory request for records form, the corporation will review the request and determine whether the requested um, to determine, sorry, which requested records the owner is entitled to and whether any redactions to the records must be made before they're provided. Within 30 days, the corporation will provide a response to the request using a form called the board's response to records request. Uh, and this form will confirm which records are going to be provided. This reply will also contain an estimate of the reasonable costs the corporation will incur to provide copies or access to each of the records. The response will be reviewed by the owner. The owner will pay the fee and return the confirmation portion of the board's re response, at which point the documents will be provided by the corporation. If an owner is not satisfied with the response received from the condominium corporation, the owner, may, the owner may decide to file an application with the condominium authority tribunal. That tribunal now has jurisdiction to resolve disputes dealing with condominium records, and there are many interesting decisions coming out of the tribunal that provide us with greater clarity on records requests. Our firm's blog, which can be found on our website, often discusses these CAT decisions, so it might make interesting reading for those who are uh, interested in learning more about production of condominium records. And I'm going to send it back over to you, Nancy. Fabulous, Jess. Hopefully everybody else enjoys reading those cases as much as we do. Maybe not, but we like we love them. In any event, thank you so much for that, Jess. Uh, just a quick reminder too, when you're asking, if, some, if an owner is asking for a contract, it would be once the contract is finalized. Of course, contracts that are in discussion or draft form don't form part of the uh, records that can be provided to owners. 
they have to be finalized. So just keep that uh, particular tweak in mind as well. So that brings us to the almost to the end of our session here today. We hope you enjoyed all of our speakers. Two final housekeeping points. One is a reminder to check out our podcast. This event will also be turned into a podcast. Uh, David is our podcast expert and he takes care of putting all these together. So he'll have it together for us in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, there's lots of podcasts that you can check up on, uh, such as the Terion podcast. I believe we have one on reserve fund studies and all sorts of other hot topics. And then our final exciting session for today or, or issue for today is to announce the winner of our great Eastern Ontario condo contest. I'm delighted to announce that our winner is, I wish I had a drum roll, I should have planned that a little bit better, Daniel Gardner. So Daniel, congratulations on the, entering all of those fantastic answers to all those questions. Stay tuned folks next year to see whether or not we might be able to do a repeat or a modified version of our condo uh, contest. Maybe different, maybe the same, I don't know. And in the meantime, I'm going to thank everybody for attending here. Thank you to the team as well. A great session as always. And we wish everybody a fantastic rest of your day. Stay safe, stay dry, and we'll see you next time. Have a great day. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Conopedia is brought to you by Davidson Hu Allen, a boutique condominium law firm servicing Eastern Ontario. You can find more about our firm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or on our website at davidsonconolaw.ca. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended to provide legal opinion or advice, which cannot be given without knowing the facts of a specific situation. Use of this podcast does not establish a solicitor and client relationship. The intro and outro music is provided by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com.